From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. One of the top concerns for people in Portland is the increase in crime. That and homelessness topped the latest DHM survey once again about what citizens see as the city's biggest problems. And the man who heads up the bureau that knows all too well about the increase in crime is Portland Police Chief Chuck Lavelle. Lavelle took over as police chief in June of 2020. It was a stunning change of leadership when former chief Jamie Rush stepped down after less than six months on the job. At the time, the bureau was under fire for its handling of demonstrations following the May 25th murder of George Floyd. Rush asked Lavelle, an African-American lieutenant, to take over the top spot at the bureau. She called Lavelle the exact right person at the exact right moment. He became the 50th Portland police chief and the fourth African-American to lead the bureau. Chief Lavelle joins us to reflect on the last nearly three years as chief, where the city is now, and his vision for the future. Welcome to my guest, Portland Police Chief Chuck Lavelle. Welcome to Straight Talk, Chief. Your first Thank time you. here. It's great yes. to have you on Straight Talk. Thank you for having me. Well, a lot has happened since you became chief, I, yes. I think you yes. would say. From your perspective as chief of police, where would you say the city of Portland is today? You know, I think we as a city are improving. Uh, it's been a really challenging two and a half, three years. Uh, when I took over, we were in the throes of the pandemic. We still had uh, some nightly uh, protests and violent uh, things happening at night on a, a night after night basis. And it was really tough, um, I think, for the city as a whole to come through that. And I think now as we come out of the pandemic, we're looking at how the city's gonna reopen, people are gonna return to work and things of that nature. I think we're on a path to a better place. There's still challenges, but I think we're, we're working our way towards something better. The DHM survey that I mentioned also asked people how they feel about downtown and whether they feel safe. And out of the 500 respondents, a majority of people who live in Portland and even more who live outside of Portland said they don't feel safe in downtown. And as you know, a lot of business owners are really frustrated with the number of break-ins and, and shoplifting. What do you want to say to them? Absolutely. Uh, businesses have had it tough throughout the city, uh, downtown in particular. Uh, many of them were boarded up for a long period of time and they were already struggling through the pandemic and then some of the, um, the other activity late at night with having windows broken and things of that nature I think put an additional strain on them. Um, I want to tell them that we're working hard at the police bureau to hire more folks, uh, to get more investigators, more officers on the street and try to address these issues that uh, Portlanders really need addressed. Um, from my perspective, um, we should be out there doing the work that the people really uh, tell us that they need and want to see. There are many units that we had in the city at one time that for, um, for staffing reasons and other reasons we don't have today. And we're looking at ways to kind of rebuild those and give people more service. We'll talk about staffing in just a moment, but you just launched a sting operation this week that was targeted at um, areas where there was shoplifting. How is that going and do you hope to expand that? We do. We've been really successful in some of our uh, very targeted missions. We've been doing some on the east side of Portland with Multnomah County and our East Precinct. Uh, we've done three missions in particular since December that have netted over 100 arrests and recovered thousands of dollars worth of stolen goods. And uh, we, we try to do that as often as we can with the staffing that we have. But I think um, as we 
So we're able to hire more people on overtime and get more staffing. We'll be able to do more of that on a sustained basis. Well, let's take a look at staffing because we've heard a lot about inadequate staffing for the police and some of the reasons there's been a slow response time. So there is a, a dashboard of people are interested in looking for themselves on your website. But Chief, tell us how many officers you have now and how many you'd like to have. Yeah, right now, today, we have 801 sworn um, sworn members. So that's police officers all the way up to the chief. Um, police officers in the rank of officer, we have about 544. Um, ideally, if you said I could have any number, I would say, you know, around 1100 would be a really good number that would allow us to have uh, things like a burglary task force an auto theft task force uh, rebuild our traffic division our narcotics unit and things that i think really address some of the needs that portlanders are facing today um, you know you look at some of the cities around the country and you do comparables uh, i was reading something recently about memphis and and their staffing crisis and the the trouble that they're having retaining people and they're a smaller city than we are and they still have over a thousand more officers than we do so how much more budget would you need to hire the, the officers that you want <laughs> a lot um and that's kind of a, an ongoing story with uh with the mayor who is the police commissioner and city council um, we do have a budget ask coming up around staffing and um, we're really hoping that we get the support we need to, to kind of rebuild. We're doing well in hiring right now. We want to keep that momentum going. Well, there's some history with the budget going back to when around the time that you became chief in June of 2020, when the city council cut the budget and they cut the, the gun violence reduction team. And then, you know, crime has gone up. The budget's been added to the pendulum has, has kind of swung, hasn't it? Yeah, uh, two and a half years ago, almost three years ago, we were looking at cuts and um, the conversation was, you know, about defunding and we need less police and more other things. And I was always supportive of those more other things, but I always believe uh, we need police officers. We need good police officers. Uh, we need them well trained and we need to be investing, not divesting. And um, I think now. Three, three years later, the conversation's much different. A lot of the conversations I have with people today are about how can we get more officers? How can we get more of a police presence here? How can we help the police do more things for the city? A lot of people, of course, are concerned about the number of shootings and homicides we've seen, a record number in the last couple of years. You've been with the Bureau since 2002, so over 20 years. How do you explain the increase in the number of shootings we've seen and homicides? Yeah, we had a big spike over the last two, two and a half years. Um, we tried to address it previously. Uh, we had a gang enforcement team. We had a gun violence reduction team. Uh, when those went away, we rebuilt uh, a new team called the Focus Intervention Team, or FIT. Um, and that team is different in that they do uh, the same kind of work, but they do it with a community uh, group attached. So there's a group we call FITCOG, uh, Community Oversight Group. And that gives some community voice to the work, uh, some community oversight. And I think that was something missing in our previous efforts. We had a lot of people who were doing really good work and hard work to address gun violence in the city. And um, those, those two efforts were kind of met with resistance. And then when we looked at rebuilding this effort, we wanted it to be sustainable. And we really felt we needed the community voice as part of this model and they've been out doing some really great work uh, making stops recovering firearms and, and really 
uh, great investigations around shootings. But why so many more? I mean, it's been record number of homicides, despite what you just said. Is it gang shootings, or, or what is it that is leading to this record number? I think some are. I think there's a lot of uh, guns on the streets as well. I think if you look across the country, shootings have gone up in a lot of a lot of cities. Um, it's not just Portland, and I think there's a lot of factors that contribute to it. Um, some of the biggest rise we've seen as far as the demographics involved in shooting are relate to our houseless community as well. Uh, typically, that was a very small percentage um, of our shootings, but now we're seeing uh, more and more occurring associated to encampments. And we've seen some shootings recently near high schools, which is really yeah. concerning. One just this week outside Franklin yep. High School, a half a block or a block away, and they had to close uh, school on, on Friday because of that and other incidents. How do you explain these shootings near schools? Yeah, those are especially troubling when they involve our youth. We've never really had um, a large number of shootings at schools during a school year. Um, I was a school resource officer for several years, and I've been with the police bureau over 20 years, and I can't remember it a time where we've had this many in and around schools. Um, we're really trying to do what we can to address it. We used to have an SRO program, school resource officer program, uh, with some discussions going on with the school district about ways the police can, can engage and help um, be a part of the solution with uh, Portland Public Schools, whether that includes school resource officers or not will probably be part of the discussion. But uh, that part is troubling. I was on the phone last night with uh, with some folks from PPS just talking through it and we're gonna to try to provide them some additional uh, presence uh, in the next week or so to help them feel safe there. Well, one of the things the city's considering uh, when it relates to, to gun violence is gunshot detection technology to try to yes. curb gun violence. And it's looking at a program, a pilot project with a provider called Shot Spotter, which uses hidden microphones in certain parts of the area that would listen for gunshot-like sounds and then alert police. But there has been some negative feedback from the community. Is this something you think is a good idea? You know, the, the gun detection uh, software, that initiative was brought to us by community. Um, and there, there are several different companies, ShotSpotter uh, is one, but there are other companies that provide that service and that technology. Um, when it was brought to me, I did some, some research on it, gave some thought to it, and I thought it's probably something we should try or pilot here in Portland. I mean, we've, we're in a position now where we really should be looking at all available tools to address gun violence. And if this is a tool that will help us do it, it's worthwhile for us to invest uh, some money to look at it and give it a try. It's working in other cities, um, other places have good results from it. So I feel like it's something that's worth, worth a pilot or worth a, a look here. One of the, the big concerns that people who are against it, they're worried about civil rights violations because a lot of these gun detection devices would be in places that have high levels of gun violence may overlap with areas where people of right. color live and then they're afraid it might be used to justify stop and frisk action. Something that concerns you? Absolutely, yeah, that's always part of the discussion. We don't want to over-police or have a negative impact on, on communities. We want to really target areas where our crimes occurring and we want to, you know, the analogy be fish with a hook, not a net. Um, so we want to be really mindful about how things like that are deployed, what the, um, the impacts and some of the unforeseen impacts might be. But, um, you know, I think of, think of it in terms too, of uh, the police getting to a shooting scene quicker, um, 
might it might not just be you know maybe you get there to apprehend someone who is involved in a shooting but maybe you get there quicker to save someone who needs life you know life-saving medical attention and things of that nature too so for me it's about kind of weighing all the pros and cons and just seeing if it's something that'll work here in our city. And this isn't something I understand the Bureau is pushing. This is something that the Community Oversight, Police Oversight brought Commission to brought to you. So um, you're supporting a pilot project, it sounds like. Well, let me go back to 2020. Okay. Uh, you took over at a, a really difficult time. It was just months after COVID hit, as you mentioned, George Floyd was murdered on May 25th. That following Friday, there was a riot in downtown Portland and then nightly clashes with police that went on for months. You were working in the Community Services Division. Mm -hmm. You were helping out in Central Precinct with crowd control and suddenly you're tapped to be police chief when Jamie Rush stepped aside. I mean, what was that like for you? Wow, it was overwhelming and unexpected. Um, it was a time where, you know, I don't think a lot of people were looking to be a police chief, especially in Portland, Oregon. But uh, you never know kind of what the future holds and what uh, what's going to come before you. And I felt, you know, personally for me, um, if there was something I could do that you know, would help the community I care about, the organization I care about, then I had to try to do it. Um, I don't think there was a law enforcement uh, executive in the country who's like, I have the answer for this or the blueprint for this. Um, I would, I just took it kind of one day at a time, said I would step in and do my best and, and hopefully help us get to a better place. Well, the Department of Justice says Portland police used force 6,000 times during the protests with tear gas, flashbang grenades, and impact munitions. Looking back, do you think your officers, or how do you think they, they handled the protests? You know, it was a difficult, difficult time for everybody. I think, uh, by and large, uh, our officers deserve a lot of credit for being out there every night, um, trying to protect businesses and trying to protect people in the city. Um, it wasn't perfect. Um, the first one to, to say that, uh, we had a lot of uses of force that are, some of them are still being looked at today. That time period is still being um, reviewed today. But there was a lot of uh, heroic, Good work done by police officers, I think, was uh, overshadowed as well. Um, at that time, mutual aid wasn't what it once was in the city. We uh, weren't able to rely on some of the law enforcement partners who had previously come to help us. Uh, they were unwilling to do that at the time. So we had to roll out a lot of the same officers night after night after night. And uh, our system for doing crowd management was not built for that. It wasn't built for thousands of uses of force night after night after night for months with the reporting structure and some of the things we had in place. What did you learn from that? And do you think if we have more protests that you do things differently? I think so. Uh, we're right now doing mobile field force training, putting all of our officers um, through uh, mobile field force training, which is basically how to do crowd management without a team like the rapid response team. So we're looking at ways to improve. Some of the things we did learn um, are around just our systems, our policies. We, we updated our force data collection reports. We changed some of our directives. Uh, we did some training on updates. Uh, we had just different things changing. Uh, temporary restraining orders from judges, legislature had weighed in, um, different court cases had come through and changed some of the tactics and some of the, the ways we were doing things. And I think, um, you know, we learned a lot in that time period, but uh, wellness, I think, uh, became a bigger focus for us. We saw kind of the effects that it had on the officers and on their families through that time frame. And we've invested a lot in, in wellness too. Let me ask you about your vision. What is your vision for the Portland Police Bureau? Um, what are your goals? Yeah, that's a great question. I get asked that a lot. Um, I kind of break it down into short term and longer term. 
Um, I'm a big believer in community policing too, so that, that plays into my vision as well. But in the short term, I think we really need to return some of the much needed services uh, to the city. I'm really focused on getting our traffic team back in some fashion. Uh, we've had a lot of fatalities and crashes on our roads that uh, they were really instrumental in addressing. Uh, would like to bring that back. Um, fentanyl overdoses, huge impact on our community. Our narcotics and organized crime team is smaller than it once was because a lot of them went to patrol to help with calls for service. Uh, building back that capability is important. And then, you know, things that we had in the past, uh, auto theft task force, very important right now. Uh, mm -hmm. Burglary task force. Uh, our detective division is smaller than it's ever been. So having investigators to investigate and do follow up, super important. So all that you need more officers. Absolutely. And in the longer term, I really feel like we need to be more embedded in community. When I first started in 2002, we had five police precincts. Today we have three. And I think, you know, that contraction uh, siloed us a little bit. We left two two precincts in, in neighborhoods that really were supportive of the police and we had good relationships with. And I think, you know, we really need to look at once our staffing starts to build, can we have more precincts, maybe smaller in different parts of the city? Um, how do we incentivize officers who are committed to, to good service and community connection to stay in the role of officer and stay working in neighborhoods for long periods of time? To me, that's the real vision for community trust and community policing. So when you talk about community policing, is that the district officer program that you're talking yeah, about? Mm -hmm. That's how I refer to it, yeah. Well, there's a lot more I want to talk to you about, Chief. So we're going to talk to the Chief right after the break. We'll find out more about the Chief and we'll ask him about body cams for Portland Police. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter and we're talking with the top cop in the Portland Police Bureau, Police Chief Chuck Lavelle. Thanks again for being with, with us, Chief. Absolutely. Glad okay. to be here. Hot topic right now body cameras, but it's yes. been going on for years. As you know, uh, the Portland is the largest municipal police agency in the country without body cameras. And a federal judge recommended nine years ago, and it was part of a settlement agreement over excessive use of force against people with mental illness. That judge recommended that the Bureau start using body-worn cameras for its officers, but it still hasn't happened. There's a lot of sticking points. There's a dispute between the city and the union over how they will be implemented. What do you think? Do you want your officers to be wearing body-worn cameras? Cameras. I do, and I would say by and large, officers want cameras. Um, there are a lot of moving parts to this discussion. Uh, you mentioned the union, the city, um, the federal government's involved, so there's a lot of uh, things to be worked out policy-wise with it, but I think by and large, people in the Portland Police Bureau want to have body cameras. I think it's an important tool. Well, let's talk about this sticking point and this dispute between the city and the police union. The way I understand it, it, it um, is about how officers review the camera footage from the body cameras before or after they, they write the reports with use of force incidents. And the city says, no, they shouldn't be able to view the footage from their body worn cameras before they write a report if there's an incident with force. And if there's deadly force, if somebody dies, they shouldn't be able to see the footage at all unless you authorize it. But the union wants officers to be able to view their own camera recordings before writing a report of any kind, including use of deadly force. Where do you fall on that dispute? Do you think that, that officers should be able to view the recordings at any time before they write a report? You know, I think there's 
one, there's many policies currently in place throughout the country. Like you said, um, we're the biggest agency in the country to not have these cameras. And um, th there's an argument that, you know, you only get one opportunity to capture um, and document uh, what you perceived at a, a certain time before you took a police action. And once you watch a video, then that opportunity is gone. And I understand that argument. And I think to me it becomes, okay, are, are there times where it's appropriate or, or beneficial? And are there times where um, it's better to not view until you uh, do your reporting? And I, I understand both sides of that. And for me, um, the parties that are involved, um, my hope is that they can come to some resolution and my job will ultimately be the implementation, rolling them out, the training, introducing the policy. And um, I think for me, I want to get cameras on officers as soon as I can. As soon as you can, which may be a while because now it's gone to an arbitrator, as I understand it, because of this sticking point between the city and the union. And then it goes to the Department of Justice because they're involved. And from what I've read, they are opposed to the union position. So if the arbitrator sides with the union, the DOJ may overturn that. Is that right? It's possible. There are a lot of discussions. Um, and Right now, we're on a path to go to arbitration, um, but um, there's still potentially maybe um, an opportunity to, to decide on something before it gets to an arbitrator. Like I said, for me, my focus is on um, can we come to an agreement that everyone can live with, and then how do, how do we roll it out in an effective and efficient manner? If you had to guess, how long do you think it's going to take? If it goes to arbitration, it'll, it'll take some time. I, would, I have no idea how long it would take, but I think if we were to come to an agreement, we could do it relatively quickly. Let's talk a little bit about you. I want to get to know you a little bit better, and I understand you are the son of a preacher. Yeah. I grew up in New York, so a lot of people in your family, I read, uh, wanted you to become or thought you would become a preacher or a minister. Did you ever yeah. want to follow in your dad's footsteps? Uh, not really, no. A lot of my relatives on my dad's side were like, oh, you're going to be a preacher just like your dad. And in my mind, I was like, no, I am not. <laughs> but, um, you know, to me, in many ways, this job is like a ministry. You get to um, have contact with people who are in some uh, pretty rough circumstances. And you get the opportunity, uh, depending on, you know, how how you show up and, and how you interject into that situation in their lives to really be an influencing force and uh, a help to them. And to me, that, that is somewhat like a ministry. And that kind of speaks to your personal mission statement. And we have a picture of a badge, a, a wooden badge that somebody made for you. And I, I heard that you have this in your office. It hangs yeah. in your office. Tell us what, what this means to you and what, what is your personal mission statement? Yeah, that badge, one of the first things I wanted when I became chief was to, to have that badge made that uh, didn't say chief, didn't have stars on it. It just said simply public servant. And to me, that's how I approach the work. And that's how I think all of us should approach the work. Uh, when we you know, take this job, raise our right hand, and, and swear to protect and serve, um, the service part sometimes uh, is easy to forget. You're out there, you have a lot of authority and autonomy, but you are a servant. And um, that kind of, I look at that in my office uh, very often, and that kind of keeps me grounded in the work. And before you were a uh, police officer, you were in the Air Force mm -hmm. as an intelligence operations specialist. How did that prepare you to be a cop? <laughs> you know, my, my whole life, I think I've been kind of service oriented. It comes from my mother. Like I was the neighborhood paper boy when I was, uh, when I was younger. And then living in upstate New York, you get a lot of snow. 
And when it would snow, my mom was like, all right, grab the shovel and go shovel, you know, some of the neighbors. All your neighbors? <laughs> yeah. And we had uh, some elderly neighbors. You'd shovel their walkway and their driveway and make sure they could get out of their house if they needed to. And my mom was really geared that way. She, um, we had a daycare center in our home when I was growing up. And she worked outside of the home, too, taking care of people with special needs. So, you know, my whole life has kind of really been service-oriented. Your mom sounds like a great person. We just have about a minute left, but I did want to ask you about the Police Corps Academy, because that's what yeah. you were in in 2002. Um, tell me about that. Yeah, that was a federal program that uh, was put together with federal dollars, and the concept was to get college-educated officers into policing. So you'd have this academy that you attended. Mine was in uh, Boring, Oregon at Camp Karatli. And uh, you would go there and complete this academy, but you had to meet all the state requirements of DPSST also at the same time. And then upon graduation, your sponsor agency would hire you. And I was sponsored by Portland. But it was a great way to get um, uh, additional officers hired that the city didn't have to pay for, uh, federal dollars actually supported. And uh, it was a really, really great program. I wish we could uh, have something like that again today. Might help with recruitment. Just about 20 seconds left for a final thought for our viewers. Right. You know, I, I would just share this. Uh, we are your police department. Uh, we're here to serve you. We wish we had you know, more to give in terms of people and, and service, but we're working hard to get there and uh, engage and support your police officers. We can get a lot further together than we can apart. Chief Lavelle, thank you for joining us here on Straight Talk. We appreciate it. The Chief's going to join us for a bonus episode of Straight Talk, so look for that on our KGW YouTube channel and on our podcast. We'll see you next week when we talk to HomeShare Oregon. They're working on new legislation to increase affordable housing by providing tax incentives to homeowners. We'll see you next week for Straight Talk.